Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. We must be honest with each other and with ourselves. Too much of what's happening in our country today is not normal. Tomorrow night, citizens of the United States get to practice some democracy. And one of the issues in this year's midterm elections is democracy itself. Here, in my view, is what is true. MAGA Republicans do not respect the Constitution. They do not believe in the rule of law. They do not recognize the will of the people. That's U.S. President Joe Biden from a speech in September, just outside Independence Hall. That's where the country's Declaration of Independence was signed and the Constitution written. His message? In this year's elections, democracy is at risk. Biden evoked the ambitions of America's early leaders as a defense of democracy. We, the people, are the true heirs of the American experiment that began more than two centuries ago. We, the people, have burning inside of each of us the flame of liberty that was lit here at Independence Hall. That appeal to the past is a common one in the United States, that whatever the trouble, those old words from the founding fathers can inspire a better future. But compared to most Americans today, the founding fathers had a different idea of who counts as people and what makes a democracy. A lot of revolutions down through history have been class-based, bottom-up affairs. The American Revolution was really not that. John Bewin is a journalist and documentarian. In this documentary series, he revisits American history, comparing the myths of America's origins to its founders' own conception of freedom and revolution. It was always a vexing question for me, why would the people at the top, why would they be the ones starting a revolution? And how the past contested ideas of democracy play into the State of the Union today. You can turn this into whatever you want and spin it up and, ah, oh, the people rose up in arms. I don't find that that's an accurate description of what I see in the accounts. The series is from Seen on Radio, a podcast from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. Over the next two episodes, we'll bring you a condensed version. This is part one of The Land That Never Has Been Yet. What part of Ohio? We're from Salina. It's, it's, it's kind of a small town. Yeah. yeah. It yeah. is a small town, not kind of. Well, thanks for coming to Mount Vernon today. Yep. Hope yep. you're enjoying your visit. Yeah. And, uh, this is a nice little song called The Soldier's Joy. you guys forward inside the house take pictures if you want to try to turn off your flash if you have any gum you're going to pass by that trash can that's where it's going to go 
It's the spring school tour season at Mount Vernon, George Washington's estate and slave labor camp in Northern Virginia. High school and middle school students roam the lawn next to the 21-room mansion on that high bluff overlooking the Potomac River. <laughs> Tell us who you are. I'm Rob Shank. I'm the senior vice president for visitor engagement here at George Washington's Mount Vernon. And uh, it's a beautiful Tuesday morning. It is. It is. I mean, look at that. I mean, come over here. You can see, I know maybe you can't see on the radio, but you can see this beautiful view that Washington uh, created here on purpose. He, uh, like many uh, men of his age, fancied himself a landscape architect. So he's purposely building an experience here by uh, these carriage paths that would lead you in and out of the wilderness and showing you these distant views of his beautiful home here on the banks of the Potomac. So it was all by design and it's kind of this interesting melding of both nature and kind of refinement. The property feels big and sprawling with its many gardens and the bowling green and slave quarters, but the estate is a fraction of what it was when Washington was here. That's right. So we have around 500 acres left of Washington's plantation here at Mount Vernon. At its height, it was uh, around 7,500 acres and fashioned into five different farms. We're standing in what he would have called Mansion House Farm. It's the most formal. It's his home. It's where the light trade and industry would have been located, but surrounded by four really working farms uh, that were producing all sorts of agricultural output. George Washington the father of our country, as we like to say, the general who won the Revolutionary War and became the first president of the United States, and yes, the owner of several hundred captive human beings. I look in on the men's slave quarters in a low-slung building not far from the mansion. There's a row of bare wooden bunk beds. A guide is explaining to guests that the food ration the enslaved workers received was not enough to keep them alive and healthy. They would grow their own food. So after they got done with, you know, their day's labor, they'd have to go and... She's saying the captive laborers had gardens of their own that they tended after hours. Another aspect of Washington that's not stressed in most American classrooms is his tremendous wealth. He was an English gentleman, fourth-generation American gentry, one of the very richest men in the colonies at the time of the Revolution, thanks in part to his wife's inherited wealth, which was even greater than his own. Here's Rob Shank again. Washington, early in his life in particular, is a very ambitious man. Uh, He is trying to establish himself, establish his wealth in this new country. I mean, really, the wealth is how you kind of climb the social ladders for the most part. And Washington, much like his father and much like the other Virginia elite, are all very much focused on land speculation. Land is how you gain wealth in this new world. Um, by the time of his, uh, really at the, at the height of his life, he owns around 52,000 acres, 81 square miles. And this is in Virginia, far western Virginia, West Virginia, Kentucky. Uh, this is in Pennsylvania. This is in New York. He is acquiring land uh, at a pretty aggressive clip to try to essentially build his economic portfolio. Wow. These were uh, these were not average people, were they? No, and uh, um, I wrote my dissertation um, at Duke back in 1990, and I thought I had a pretty clever title for it, which was "The Revolt of the Ruling Class," because that's who they were. The vast majority of the of the names that we know from the Revolutionary Era uh, were elites. 
Woody Holton is a historian at the University of South Carolina. And my specialty is the American Revolutionary Era, but specializing in the people who are not on the back of the $2 bill, uh, that is Native Americans, women, uh, African Americans, and how they influence the famous uh, people like Jefferson and Washington. For Holton, the starting point for understanding the revolution and why it happened is to recognize this. A lot of its leaders were people sort of like George Washington, wealthy Southern planters and slaveholders. And most of the rest were rich business people and lawyers from places like New England and Pennsylvania. And so it was always a a vexing question from me. Why would the people at the top of the hierarchy, why would they be the ones starting a revolution? Why indeed? A lot of revolutions down through history have been class-based, bottom-up affairs. Poor and working people overthrowing the rich elite, often to escape desperation and to get better compensation for their back-breaking and sometimes life-threatening work. The American Revolution was really not that. So how to answer Woody's vexing question? For starters, he says most of America's founders were not originally spoiling for a split with Britain. As late as the fall of 1774, he says, people like Washington, Franklin, and Jefferson are pissed off, but not yet in full-on rebellion. They are protesting the British, but they do not want independence. Really, what they want is conservative. That is, they want to turn back the clock to how things had been in 1763, before Parliament tried to tax them and regulate their trade in, in ways that it hadn't before and, um, and limit their Western expansion. So all they want to do, it's the, it's the British that are, are they're taking the initiative and trying to change the relationship between the colony and the crown. To make sense of this, we need to back up to before that important date Woody mentioned, 1763. And George Washington, the colonial settler on the make, is part of the story. Let's go back to Mount Vernon and Rob Shank. I think, you know, uh, many Americans today know the, the George Washington on the $1 bill. They know the old, crotchety George Washington. I think fewer people know and appreciate the young, athletic, ambitious, action-adventure hero Washington. In the 1750s, the young Washington, just in his 20s, is already a high-ranking military officer, thanks in part to his family connections. He's fighting in the Seven Years' War, also known as the French and Indian War. It's a war between the British and the French to claim large chunks of North America. The British colonies don't have much money to pay soldiers, so they promise them land for their service. Washington and other members of the Virginia militia are granted um, significant you know, land holdings out in what would be the Ohio country. Now, if you know the history of the French and Indian War, um, the British, after this tremendous victory over the French, uh, are confronted with enormous debts, more than they know what to deal with. Uh, They've put all this money and treasure into securing North America, and they're fearful of kind of a continuance of low-level violence, particularly on the part of Native Americans uh, on the frontier. So they issue, the king issues this proclamation, the Royal Proclamation of 1763, which essentially says, you know, no, we don't want you Americans to travel and settle beyond the Appalachians. Uh, That will only incite Indian revolts, which we don't have the money or troops to put down. The proclamation is also designed to keep the American colonists close to the coast. 
so they'll remain dependent on the Brits for trade. Washington and many other Virginians are incensed over this. The decree frustrates the plans of Washington and some of his fellow elite Virginians, says Woody Holton. They wanted to profit from their Western property, but now they can't sell it. You know, same way that if you're selling your car now, you can't sell me your car unless you've got the title. And they couldn't get title to the land. People like Washington and Jefferson, Madison, who were speculating in that Western land, they couldn't get title to it um, until uh, they uh, until the proclamation of 1763 was repealed, and it was never repealed. The only thing that repealed it was the American Revolution. So yes, we hear about the Stamp Act of 1765 and the tax on tea and other essentials two years later, which led to the Boston Tea Party, all that stuff that angered the American patriots in the following years. But many historians argue the proclamation of 1763 was an important early break in the relationship between the British Crown and leading American colonists like Washington and Jefferson. It was their single largest source of income, other than marrying rich widows, which you only get to do once, unless you become a widower. Other than that, it was their single largest source of income, and the British cut it off. And so we know that was one of the things that that drove them into the revolution. Woody says later, in the 1770s, As the colonists protested this and other British restrictions, events tumbled forward and got beyond the control of these conservative elites. In his book, Forced Founders, Holton writes about another group of people who helped shove the so-called patriots toward revolution, a group usually described as passive and helpless in our traditional telling of the revolution. Enslaved people were attentive enough to what was going on. They had to be that they knew that a conflict between whites was coming, and within that, they spotted opportunity for themselves. In late 1774, the protests and rhetoric were heating up in the colonies. Some enslaved black people approached Virginia's governor, Lord Dunmore, who was loyal to the British crown. They offered to help his side, the British side, against the American rebels. Here we are, man. Put us to work. We'll fight for your freedom. We know you need labor because there's very few loyalists, especially in Virginia, among whites. So we're going to be your black loyalist army. And in return for that, you'll give us our freedom. And Governor Dunmore turned them away. But they kept coming. Finally, a year later, in late 1775, Dunmore took up the enslaved people on their offer and formed what he called the Ethiopian Regiment made up of about 200 men who'd escaped from slave camps. They helped win a battle, defeating a colonial militia and capturing two rebel colonels. One of the men they captured was the former owner of a soldier in the Ethiopian regiment. If that weren't enough of an insult, Lord Dunmore issued an emancipation proclamation, offering freedom to any slaves who could manage to escape from their masters and join the British. And that alliance infuriated um, the white colonists and really became the thing that turned these people. Remember I said they were just protesters. Now they're not just protesting. Now they're not just trying to turn back the clock and make the British Empire the way the way it was before. That's added an, an emotional content. They, they now want out of the empire and that becomes their reason uh, for wanting to declare independence. 
Some of the strongest evidence of that anger can be found in Thomas Jefferson's first draft of the Declaration of Independence, which he wrote in June of 1776. The Christian king of Great Britain, determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold. In that draft, Jefferson writes a long paragraph in which, weirdly, he blames the king for slavery in the colonies. Remember, Jefferson is a major slaveholder. He also writes this, a clear reference to Lord Dunmore's Emancipation Proclamation. He is now exciting those very people to rise in arms among us and to purchase that liberty of which he has deprived them by murdering the people on whom he also obtruded them. Obtruded, meaning the Crown forced African slaves upon the innocent white colonists and is now encouraging those enslaved people to once again victimize their masters by attacking them. The reference to slaves is that by far the biggest of the grievances. It's the only one where it uses all caps. It's the it's the last, and you know they saved the best for last rhetorically uh, in those days. Jefferson is just screaming that this is the the premier, uh, the capstone grievance against the British. In the final draft of the Declaration, all that's left of this passage is a brief reference, saying the king has excited domestic insurrections amongst us. The rest got cut out because some signers of the Declaration objected to Jefferson's florid denunciation of slavery, a practice they intended to continue. So, back to Woody Holton's question. Why did these rich men, the most comfortable people in colonial America, come to lead a revolution? Trying to understand the mind of this paradoxical figure, the elite revolutionary, you know, if you really forced me, which I'd rather not be forced to to put the the motives of the American Revolution into a single phrase, it would be resistance to British meddling. Meddling in not just general meddling, but meddling in those relationships, especially relationships between the gentry and the slaves, and earlier than that, the gentry relationship with Native Americans. So, yes, Woody says, the American patriots had a legitimate beef with the British government about taxation without representation, the main spark of the revolution that we hear about in history class. But he argues the revolution would not have happened if not for these other British moves that infuriated the colonists. Actions like the Royal Proclamation that stopped land speculation in Western native territory, and the later effort to lure enslaved black people over to the British side. We have to be capacious enough in our own thinking to see that the people like Jefferson and Washington and Franklin and Hancock who rebelled against the British were doing it for a complex set of motives, some of which we would really admire and, and others of which we would not. And how much of it was about we want to create a democracy? We want to be free so we can create a democracy on these shores. None. None on the part of, of most elites. I mean, I think there were some um, idealistic dreamers. Um, I think Jefferson had some uh, tendencies that way and would have more. Um, you know, they were reading Enlightenment writers, um, especially Montesquieu. Um, Woody says men like Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin were broadly interested in democratic ideas more so than guys like Hamilton and Washington, who really were not. But he says what drove the elite revolutionaries was a desire to gain freedom from British meddling 
and the ability of the colonies to govern themselves. That did not mean giving regular people in these new states, even white men, let alone anyone else, a lot more say in governing America. In the fall of 1786, George Washington got a letter that, I imagine, messed up his whole day. I picture him in his study out there at Mount Vernon. Outside his French-paned windows, several hundred captive black people are toiling away on his vast farmlands. Washington is 54, but feeling older. His rheumatism is acting up. It's been three years since the Treaty of Paris ended the Revolutionary War, with the British recognizing the United States. Washington spent eight years away from home leading the Continental Army, so he's written that he wants to live quietly from now on, under the shadow of my own vine and my own fig tree. There, at his desk, he opens the letter from his friend and former military officer, Henry Knox, writing from New York. He tells Washington about the commotions in Massachusetts, farmers protesting high taxes and showing up with guns by the hundreds to shut down county courts. This dreadful situation has alarmed every man of principle and property in New England. They start as from a dream and ask what has been the cause of our delusion. Wealthy people in New England wanted these protests to stop. But the Articles of Confederation, the nation's first federal agreement created after the Revolution, gave the national government no power to tax, make federal laws, or keep a standing army. The Articles tied together loosely what were essentially 13 independent republics. The Confederation Congress could sign treaties, print money, and declare war, but couldn't put down uprisings like the one in Massachusetts. So Knox is telling Washington, the current arrangement just doesn't work. Our government must be braced, changed, or altered to secure our lives and property. When Washington writes back, he expresses alarm about the civil disobedience in western Massachusetts, the resistance movement led by, among other people, a farmer named Daniel Shays. Good God, who besides a Tory could have foreseen Washington worries that if that disorder isn't resolved, it could spread. And in fact, farmers and other working people are protesting high taxes in other parts of the new nation. There are combustibles in every state which a spark may set fire to. Washington agrees with Knox that leaders of the states should meet, and soon, to construct a stronger federal government at a constitutional convention. Washington knows he's the most widely respected man in the country, but he doesn't want to come out of retirement and says he doesn't plan to attend. In January 1787, Henry Knox writes again, pleading with Washington, saying the success or failure of the meetings in Philadelphia may rest on his shoulders. I should therefore be much obliged for information of your decision on this subject. Washington is already being called the father of his country. His sense of duty and concern for his reputation finally went out. And he made it very clear, you can read his letters from the spring of 1787, he made it very clear that the reason he changed his mind was Shays' Rebellion, that that convinced him that the crisis was that great. Historian Woody Holton of the University of South Carolina. 
Shays' Rebellion is the name that eventually got attached to those commotions in Massachusetts. In retrospect, what follows can seem inevitable if not preordained. Washington presides over the Constitutional Convention. The men there, the framers, construct a powerful new federal government with a president and a bicameral Congress and a court system. And Washington will eventually be named the first president. The Constitution is ratified by the states in 1788, but only after a contentious nine-month debate. Woody Holton says the American people and their state governments could have rejected the new blueprint for the nation, and almost did. It was a very near thing. Uh, Most historians think that roughly half, maybe a majority of Americans, opposed the Constitution, and a few things finally got enough votes to squeeze it past. And one of the crucial things that got people to accept the Constitution was, A, George Washington has given his seal of approval, and B, if we create this powerful new national government and we're really terrified that this president is going to be a king because he's so powerful, but we don't have to worry about it because the first president's going to be Washington. So if you take him out of the equation, which you have to take him out of the equation if there's no Shays' Rebellion, then I don't think the Constitution would have been adopted. You're listening to Ideas and The Land That Never Has Been Yet from John Bewin at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. You can hear Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also hear Ideas on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. The past is shrouded in mystery. To understand it, you have to get up close. Something happened to our collective psyche after the atom bomb. On NPR's Throughline, we reopen stories from the past to find clues to the present. Find Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. In the second part of this episode, John Bewin revisits Shay's Rebellion. It's the kind of thing taught in late elementary or early middle school in the U.S., trading off nuance for a basic timeline of the country's history. Shay's Rebellion is usually taught as proof that the U.S. needed a strong central government. But at the time, it might have proven, to its leaders at least, that the U.S. was just a little too democratic. This is The Land That Never Has Been Yet. Yeah, so how do you want to begin? I mean, I'm in western Massachusetts in the village of Pelham. Bruce Klotz, who's a volunteer with the Pelham Historical Association, is one of several men showing me around. So this is um, the Pelham Historic Town Hall. This is the center of Pelham. It was built, what, 1743? So this happens to be the oldest town hall in continual use in the United States. These days, the town only holds about one meeting a year in the old building in order to keep making that claim about continual use. But in 1786, the town hall was the central gathering place for the village. 
Daniel Shays and his large family lived on a farm nearby. The son of poor Irish immigrants, Shays had fought heroically during the Revolutionary War at Lexington, Bunker Hill, Saratoga, and he rose to captain. So here in Pelham, the respected former officer sometimes led the local militia in drills outside the meeting hall. And this was one of the places where the crisis was, you know, gathered people. The other place was just down the hill from here, which was Conkey's Tavern. Dan Bullen is my main guide here. He's a writer based in Western Mass. He's getting ready to publish a book about what he prefers to call the resistance that Daniel Shays eventually came to lead. The crisis Bullen is talking about? All the states, all 13 of the states were suffering the same economic problems after the war. The new country was in a bad economic slump in the 1780s, and the states had another big problem. To pay for the Revolutionary War, the colonies and the Continental Congress had essentially borrowed money by issuing bonds. Now the bondholders, mostly well-off people, were demanding payment. To get the money to pay off the bonds, some of the new state governments chose harsh austerity, raising taxes on their citizens. At that time, most free people were farmers getting by with little to spare. Massachusetts, under Governor James Bowden, raised farmers' taxes drastically, up to four or five times the tax rates under British rule. In some other states, the people protested high taxes and the legislatures responded or got voted out. All the other states made compromises, or in Rhode Island they voted in you know, the Farmers' Party and they issued reforms, they issued paper money, they let the debts depreciate. That is, Rhode Island made it easier for farmers to pay and the bondholders just wouldn't get the full face value of their bonds. They let people off the hook, everybody took their losses together and they moved on. But in Massachusetts, the, the elites in Boston said, we're gonna get dollar for dollar, we're gonna pay off these war bonds and we're gonna tax the people to do it. And the injustice of that was too much to suffer. Governor Bowden was a rich landlord and merchant and he had a personal stake in the crisis. He personally held war bonds worth more than 3,200 pounds. Which is, people were buying farms for 70 pounds, so 3,200 pounds is a huge windfall. Out in Western Mass, Daniel Shays was in danger of losing his farm, along with many of his neighbors. He had those big tax payments due, and it didn't help that he'd never been paid for his years in the Continental Army. A lot of other soldiers were paid in paper currency that had lost most of its value but the state was demanding that the people pay their taxes in full, in gold and silver coin, which a lot of farmers just didn't have and couldn't get. So they faced having to sell their land or having courts take it from them. Judges were also throwing men in jail for failing to pay. So now, if you're a farmer who's at risk of losing his land after fighting for eight years, and it's being taken away from you because you don't have the right kind of currency, and you're angry about it, you're a lazy moocher who deserves to lose it. You should be taught the value of hard work. Elites were saying things like that about the protesting farmers. Henry Knox, in his letter to George Washington that October, said the real cause of the unrest in Massachusetts was not high taxes, as it appeared to be. No, he said, the problem was the farmers, their greed and envy. They feel at once their own poverty compared with the opulent, and their own force, and they are determined to make use of the latter in order to remedy the former. You can see how a class of people 
would start to look at each other and say, you guys, this isn't, this isn't fair. How did they set this up? The farmers tried peaceful ways of voicing their distress. For months, groups of farmers in western Massachusetts sent petitions to the state capitol appealing for lower taxes or leniency. But they got no response. So on August 29, 1786, hundreds of farmers, including Daniel Shays, went to the Hampshire County Court in Northampton, which was scheduled to deal with tax debtors that day. Dan Bullen. They surrounded the court. They wouldn't let the judges in. Judges huddled in the taverns. They tried to negotiate for terms under which they could open the court. There was an impasse. The The court did not open that day. The Shaysites, as they would come to be called, then did similar actions in other counties, shutting down all the debtor courts west of Boston over the next few weeks. In Boston, the government led by James Bowden took a hard line. And the way that they tried to solve it was by the middle of, end of October, they're circulating a riot law, a riot act, that will arrest, if you get, so if you gather in a group of armed men and you don't disperse within an hour after being told, you are liable to being arrested, transported to Boston, whipped 39 stripes every three months during your incarceration, you forfeit your land and property to the state, and sheriffs are indemnified against liability if they kill or injure protesters. And that sounds a lot like British law again. We're just, you're not proud people living on your own land. You are subjects, and you will be subject to our authority. Through the fall of 1786, things got more and more tense. Farmers, led by Shays and a few other men, kept showing up in force, not allowing the debtor courts to open. Then, the first bloodshed. In November, the state government sent men on horseback to arrest some leaders of the resistance, including a man named Job Shattuck. He was the largest landowner in Groton, Massachusetts, and the leader of several protests. When they caught up with Shattuck and he resisted arrest, one of the government's men slashed his leg with a sword, crippling him. Still, as Dan Bullen says, no actual violence came from the Shazites. You can turn this into whatever you want and spin it up and, ah, the people rose up in arms. I don't find that that's an accurate description of what I see in the accounts. They didn't rise up in arms. They made proud displays of opposition to their government, disobedience. Until January 1787. To tell this climactic part of the story, Dan Bullen and I go to Springfield, Massachusetts. Yeah, right behind us is the, um, the Springfield Armory. And, uh, the Armory is a red brick building with a clock tower in the center. It's now a museum and historic site, part of a community college campus. Men are at work out on the big lawn where we're standing. Lawnmowers and leaf blowers. During and after the Revolutionary War, this was a major weapons arsenal for the U.S. Army. It was here that things turned lethal. Governor Bowden in Boston had had enough of the farmers' insurrection in the West. He raised money from Boston merchants to create a private army of more than 4,000 men. On January 19th, Bowden sent the mercenaries out from Boston, marching west through the snow, to subdue the Shazites once and for all. Daniel Shays and the other resistance leaders decided to seize the arsenal before the governor's army could get to it. On January 25th, about 1,200 farmers marched up to the Springfield Arsenal. So Shays arrives 
from the east uh, toward the Arsenal grounds in reports say knee-deep snow late in the day. Imagine a cold January day that these guys are all on foot. Um, but they showed up in lines eight abreast, their weapons at their shoulders. The governor's army hadn't arrived yet, but the arsenal was protected by the Springfield militia, commanded by William Shepard. Bullen says all the evidence suggests the Shazites did not want or expect a violent confrontation. They hoped a show of resolve might lead to one more chance for negotiation. But then... They received cannon fire. The first shots went over their heads as a warning shot. Those shots had the effect of making them bunch up and go faster. And when they didn't stop at about 100 yards out, the general in charge of the grounds, uh, William Shepard, who is a Revolutionary War general from Westfield, ordered his men to lower the cannons to waistband height. And they fired grape shot, steel balls bigger than thumb knuckles, ripped through the first three lines. The grape shot mowed down the first three rows of men, killing four and wounding 20. The Shazites did not return fire. They turned around immediately to cries of murder, murder, um, and they retreated back to Ludlow. They did not make another attempt to take anything over after that. The protest movement was over. But you could say the Shazites won. In the next election, just a few months after the shooting at the Arsenal, Massachusetts voters threw out Governor Bowdoin and elected his predecessor, John Hancock. Yes, that John Hancock, famous for his big signature on the Declaration of Independence. Hancock was a rich guy like Bowdoin, but his politics were very different. He dramatically lowered taxes on the people and pardoned several Shazites who'd been sentenced to hang, though he didn't yet pardon Shays himself. Shays fled to Vermont, which was then beyond the borders of the United States. He was pardoned the following year, and he lived as a struggling farmer in western New York State until his death in 1825. Dan Bullen says most Americans who've heard the story at all have a vague understanding some farmers launched an insurrection for some reason, demonstrating the need for a stronger federal government that helped lead to the writing of our cherished Constitution. Dan says these accounts often gloss over the class conflict at the heart of the farmers' movement. In 1787, after the dust settled out here, it, it quickly became unfashionable to tell stories about people who had risen against the government. And I'm putting up the scare quotes about that. Um, because really they were staging a defensive anti-austerity campaign, in my understanding. But we can't tell that story, because then it would sound like rich Americans were oppressing poor Americans, and we would have to try to explain how that happened. But we pretend to be a classless society, and we don't want to hear that story, so we just tell the story about drunken rabble-rousers who stirred up popular resentment. They wanted stuff that wasn't theirs. Driving this winding road through trees, rolling hills, just beautiful countryside here in kind of north central Virginia. Horse farms. I'm off to see the estate of another founding father. This one's about 70 miles from Washington's Mount Vernon 
And by the way, only about 30 miles from Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. Just turned on to Constitution Highway, as it's named. You know, we, Madison suffers a little bit from being a little bit more of a behind-the-scenes guy. And I think that historically that's been his vibe, and that's kind of been... Price Thomas, Director of Marketing and Communications at Montpelier. It's the one-time home of James and Dolly Madison and their 100 or so enslaved workers at any given time. Madison was rich, but not as rich as Washington, and he was almost two decades younger. He would become the fourth president. He stood about five foot three, and in the American popular imagination, he doesn't seem to stand as tall as some other founders. You know, it's kind of a running joke, but we're like, you know, we got Jefferson and, and Washington and, you know, Madison kind of behind the scenes, and then Hamilton gets a musical. So, you know, he's, some people call him, you know, I think they call him the forgotten founder for that reason, is that his name's not really ever out there. And yet, for better or worse, no one person, no one, did more to shape the United States we live in today than James Madison. Just 35 years old in 1786, he leads the call for the Constitutional Convention, the one Henry Knox is bugging George Washington to attend. Then Madison spends the winter and spring studying up and writing what becomes known as the Virginia Plan, a template for the discussions in Philadelphia. He does a bunch of reading and he's fluent in seven languages and, and is, you know, pouring over all things historical governments. And so that goes into the Virginia Plan, which becomes the topic of conversation at the convention. And so that's how he earns that moniker, Father of the Constitution. It's not that he got everything that he wanted. It's not that he wrote the entire thing. It's that his foundational ideas in the Virginia Plan became kind of the nucleus of that that other guys built on and, you know, that they talked about and that eventually becomes the, uh, becomes the Constitution. It's also thanks to Madison that we know much at all about what happened during those three and a half months in Philadelphia. Fifty-five white men, most of them rich, almost half of them slaveholders, attended the convention at the Pennsylvania State House. They represented each of the states in small delegations. Even though it was hot and humid, they kept the windows closed and covered so no one could peer in. The men made a vow of secrecy and any notes they took were collected at the door, except Madison's, and some less extensive notes by a couple of other delegates which did survive. He's one of the very few delegates to actually attend every session of the convention. A lot of them are coming and going. Michael Dickens leading a Constitution tour in Montpelier. He talks about Madison's role as the chronicler of the convention, alone in his room every night, writing out highlights from the day, paraphrasing key debates and speeches. At one point he said he was staying up to midnight to transcribe what everybody was saying. He said the effort almost killed him. He stored those minutes in this house for over 50 years. So nobody ever saw these until, except Dolly, uh, until Madison's death, at which point they were uh, uh, transferred to the Library of Congress where they reside today. Resolution 4, First Clause that the members of the national legislature ought to be elected by the people of the several states being taken up. On May 31, 1787, the delegates debated this fundamental idea of the new republic. Would members of the House of Representatives be directly elected by the people? The state legislatures under the Articles of Confederation were radically democratic for the 18th century. 
Many states had lowered their property requirements, so up to 80% of white male voters could cast ballots. By comparison, Britain's parliamentary system allowed just a small fraction of landowning men to vote. Many American states held legislative elections annually. These governments were more accountable to the people than any in the world at the time. Of course, full citizens of the new nation did not include the vast majority of the people, women, Native Americans, or enslaved black people. Still, some delegates at the convention looked at this picture and saw too much democracy. The people, immediately, should have as little to do as may be about the government. They lack information and are constantly liable to be misled. That's Roger Sherman, a delegate from Connecticut, and here's Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts, the site of Shays' Rebellion. The evils we experience flow from the excess of democracy. Madison quotes Gary as saying he's become more suspicious of Republican government. He's learned from experience, quote, the danger of the leveling spirit. Leveling meant efforts toward economic equality. Men, including Madison and George Mason, gave speeches in favor of popular election of the House, and the delegates approved that measure. But the deep worry about giving ordinary citizens too much power was a constant theme at the convention. It led to many structural checks on people power in the document, especially the powerful president and his veto, and the Senate, which many of the delegates explicitly described as a house of elites that would temper the less disciplined people's house. Often mixed in with the concern about too much democracy were frank remarks about divisions of wealth and class. The elite framers were thoroughly class conscious. All communities divide themselves into the few and the many. The first are the rich and well-born, the other the mass of the people. That's Alexander Hamilton, quoted in the convention notes of another delegate. Here Hamilton is arguing that members of the United States Senate should be appointed for life. The people are turbulent and changing. They seldom judge or determine right. Give, therefore, to the first class a distinct permanent share in the government. Nothing but a permanent body can check the imprudence of democracy. Hamilton also thought the president should be appointed for life. He did not want a radical democratic break from the British system. Not at all. In fact, Madison's summary of one Hamilton speech includes this passage. In his private opinion, he had no scruple in declaring that the British government was the best in the world, and that he doubted much whether anything short of it would do in America. Hamilton lost those arguments. The resulting Constitution was somewhat more democratic than he wanted. But the delegates with the most democratic instincts didn't get their way either. James Wilson of Pennsylvania said the people should elect their senators directly instead of the convention's more elitist choice to have state legislatures choose members of the Senate. That wouldn't change until the 17th Amendment in 1913. Madison argued for proportional representation in the Senate, as in the House. If he'd got his way, it could have meant that today California would have 60-some U.S. senators to one for Wyoming. Today's Big D Democrats would love that, so would a lot of people who cherish the principle of one person, one vote. 
Instead, of course, the Constitution gave the states equal representation, two senators per state. That was a key compromise demanded by the small states, who likely would have bolted the convention if the big states hadn't buckled. Even though they were published 180 years ago, Madison's notes on the Constitution are revelatory. At least they were for me. One concept that jumped out at me several times, when delegates said things like this. An accurate view of the matter would prove that property is the main object of society. That's Governor Morris of Pennsylvania. Pierce Butler and Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, both of South Carolina, also talk about a government instituted for the protection of property. At one point, James Wilson disagrees, saying the most noble object of government is the improvement of the human mind. But when you read the conversation among these property-rich men, you can't miss that they're out to protect private property and the people who have it in the legal framework they're building for the new nation. Which brings us back to the theme of class division. Those who own lots of things and those who don't. And in particular, the division between people who owe money and those who are owed debtors and creditors. The men who wrote the Constitution, if you look at their number one concern, it was to stop the state legislatures from defrauding creditors. Historian Woody Holton again. To explain what he means, Woody is taking us back to where we started this episode, talking about the Revolutionary War bonds that were held by rich creditors. Remember, the efforts to pay off those bonds were leading to backbreaking state taxes and austerity and people's protests like Shea's Rebellion. The Constitution would solve that problem by giving the national government new power to tax. A federal tax on imports paid off the war bonds in full, making those creditors happy, including some who were delegates to the Constitutional Convention. One of Woody Holton's many writings is an article called the capitalist constitution. He says the framers, almost all financial elites, were eager to make the United States safe for business, an attractive haven for capital. For example, the father of the constitution himself. James Madison. In 1787, when he wrote the constitution, he was 36 years old and he was still living with his parents. Now, not a bad basement to live in if you've ever seen Montpelier but he wanted to get going on his own. He's, 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 you know, he's 36 years old. So by that time, he had set up a land speculation firm with his friend and future successor in the White House, uh, James Monroe. And they wanted to buy a ton of Western land and then sell it at a huge profit and make themselves wealthy the way Washington had done. Trouble was, with all that economic upheaval of the 1780s, no one would lend money to the two Virginians for their land speculation company. The Constitution changed that. So yes, it made creditors happy, but at the same time it pleased people like Madison who wanted to take on debt by finding investors. Because if Madison can borrow money in Europe and set up his, his enterprise, he can get wealthy, but in fairness to him, he's not just thinking about himself, that's going to move the whole economy along. He'll hire other people, and he'll spend a lot of money, and that, that will bolster and improve the entire economy. So the Constitution is a capitalist document in that it's meant to attract capital to the American economy. 
The Constitution did that not only by settling the war debt. Other parts of the document gave the federal government power to regulate commerce across state and international lines and allowed for taxes on imports but not on exports. That was a huge gift to slaveholders who made their money by exporting things like tobacco and cotton. Another gift to the owners of human property was the Fugitive Slave Clause, complete with its euphemistic language to avoid using the S-word in the Constitution. No person held to service or labor in one state under the laws thereof, escaping into another, shall... The clause required that enslaved people who ran away be returned to their owners no matter where in the nation they were caught. The Constitution also gave the new national government power to put down mass protests like Shays' Rebellion or any future slave revolt, which was something slaveholders worried about a lot. Finally, consider all those layers of veto power that the framers built in to check the democratically elected House of Representatives. The House is often called the People's House because House districts are proportional. Whether you lived in Philadelphia or rural Georgia, you'd have a congressman representing your community and its interests, about 35,000 people per district in those early days. And House members had to face the voters every two years. But a law passed in the House has to get through the Senate, the President, and the courts. An elaborate obstacle course always there to knock down any troublesome ideas bubbling up from below. And that was the whole point, was to create a government that was much less accountable to the people. To make it responsible by making it less responsive. And many of the framers said it explicitly. Under the Articles of Confederation, the states were too democratic, they thought. They really believed that there's a, a, a continuum or spectrum between if you move the needle towards more democracy, you're going to get less investment capital. And if you move it towards less democracy, you're going to get more uh, investment capital. You are listening to the first part of The Land That Never Has Been Yet. The series is from Seen on Radio, a podcast from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. It is produced by John Bewin, with series collaborator Chenjerai Kumanika, edited by Loretta Williams. You can hear the full unabridged series at seenonradio.org. That's S-C-E-N-E on radio.org. This episode was adapted for ideas by Matthew Lazen Ryder. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.